So no uh, creation science seminar tonight, but next week we'll pick that up. Amen? And uh, one other thing, I just would encourage you to, um, me and Andrea are going to get an opportunity. Um, The Troutmans and a group are bringing us up to Colorado this week, and we're going to do a two-day teaching seminar next uh, weekend in uh, Colorado where they live. And so be praying for that. Be praying that God would just open um, the hearts and the minds of people and um, pray that God would have his way and touch lives. Amen. And in my absence, uh, Jeff Call is going to minister next weekend. So uh, I just would ask you to pray for us. Uh, we'll be back uh, Monday of the following of, uh, next, of next week. So, all right. I want to read um, before we begin today. Happy Father's Day, everybody. And uh, yeah, I give all the fathers a hand. I, I want to encourage you, uh, dads. You know, if you're a if you're a father, especially, um, to like Richard said. You know, to understand the privilege uh, along with the responsibility that 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 carries. Um, Do you know the scripture in talking about fathers, of course, God our Father. But you know, Paul, here I'm fixing to read a scripture to you from the uh, letter 2 Timothy. Paul considered himself Timothy's father in the faith. In fatherhood... Um, is not all about biology. And spiritually, I believe that we are all called in some form, some fashion, to be fathers. Um, Men um, have been given a a place as the head of their home. You know, Paul talks about this in his letter to uh, the Ephesians. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And, you know, those, those things are not real popular today because we, we live in a culture that is so much about equality, but we don't really understand what true equality is. And we think equality must mean there can't be any differences and so what we try to do in our culture today is, is erase the lines of demarcation and erase the lines that, that distinguish us. We want to erase the lines between men and women. But, but God didn't create men and women to be the same. He created them very differently, though I believe we are equal in the sense that we are children of God. In our salvation, we are equal. In the love that the Father bestows upon us, we are equal. In the sense that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, a a woman doesn't have a different spirit than a man does. We're equal in that sense. But yet, there are many things that distinguish us. And so... I want you to just be encouraged, dads, fathers, because 
these things that God has established are really under attack. And they're under attack, and, and I don't think people fundamentally even understand why they're under attack. They're under attack because it's what God has established. And the enemy in this world system is always opposed to what God has established. And so, Paul, when he was writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, he says this in Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Well, let's just begin in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Do you know that 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 day is coming? There is a day of His appearing. He has, in a sense, He has appeared to us. That's how we have come to, to faith in Christ. We have, like Abraham, seen Christ in the day of His resurrection. You wouldn't believe in Him if you have not by faith seen that. But I believe Paul here is talking about a day that's coming when there will be a physical appearing and God will physically come to this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be judged. Paul says this, he says, God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at the day of His appearing in His kingdom. His kingdom's here. It's ever increasing. It's here. There is a day coming when that kingdom in the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of the glory of God will fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, that this day is coming. And he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That pretty well describes, I think it probably described Paul's day, I think it describes our day. We're not living in unique days in that sense. I mean, those Paul wrote that because... They were struggling with that. There were people that would not endure sound doctrine. Do you know there have always been people that won't endure sound doctrine? But I do believe this. With the advent of so much that, that enables us to get so much information so quickly, that's a sword that cuts both ways. The truth can be spread much more quickly than it ever has been able to be spread before, but, but so can the lie. And people today, now think about this, people today can sit in their homes, never leave their homes, and they can channel surf, it can be on the radio, it can be on the television, and they can pick 
whatever doctrine, whatever teaching, whatever thing they want to hear, that they want to take in, they can just take it in. They can take in 10 minutes of that, and if they get tired of that, they can just switch the channel and take in 10 minutes of this. And it makes me wonder, what, what, what is it that we are learning? But yet, God has given us something in His Word that has been preserved. Since its inception, He has compiled this Word and has preserved this Word and passed this Word down to us. And this Word is simply, in written form, communicating to us the living Word which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And fathers, I want to encourage you. God has put you in a place of responsibility. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve were there, and Adam was created first, and Adam was the gatekeeper. He was the head. And dads, fathers, men, were the gatekeepers. Not just for our families, but I believe we're the gatekeepers in the church. It was the men, the elders, who would sit at the gates of the city. And they would sit there every day, and they would see everything that came in and everything that went out. And nothing came in and nothing left without their knowledge. And God has called us to be gatekeepers. And so I want to encourage you. There's nothing greater that we can give than to give the truth. Than to instill the truth. Whether it be in our children. Those that God has placed in our lives to influence. That could be at work. That could be... Where you play, that could be in your home. And I, I want to just remind you of that. Because it should be something that we take great joy in. And we see as a privilege that God has given to us. I want to read another scripture to you from the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Which kind of goes with what Paul said to Timothy. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. It says, The words of the wise are like goads. You know what a goad is, an ox goad? It was a big, long stick that the, the farmer would use. He would goad his ox. He, he'd get his ox to, to go in the right direction. He'd, he'd goad his ox, and he would keep that ox motivated. He'd bring correction and, and made sure that that ox was doing what it was supposed to do, the way it was supposed to do it. The words of the wise are like goads. They keep us on track. The words of the wise keep us on track. They keep us motivated. They, they keep things in their proper perspective. 
Sometimes I just want to stop and eat the grass over here. But the words of the wise make sure that I don't get distracted. And the words of scholars, that that word in the Hebrew there is not really scholars, it's masters of the assemblies. The words of the masters of the assemblies. You might say a preacher, a teacher. It can be here, I don't know, it could be in your home. The words of the scholars, the words of the masters of assemblies are like well-driven nails. Now, I just so happen, I've been trying to work a little this week on the, the, the place. We're trying to build a, a place for Caleb and EJ and the baby that's coming in 90 days. 90 days. So as the days are ticking down, I am reminded that, man, we have a lot of work left to do before that baby gets here. Now, I'm not, the, I, I, I'm not the best carpenter in the world. I'll just admit that right up front. I actually enjoy framing. You know, framing is, I like framing because um, you, you don't have to be as, quite as precise with framing as you do if you're like, you know, doing finish work. Um, just put a few extra nails in it and, 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 you know, if it doesn't match perfectly, it still will work. But I'm probably too much of a perfectionist than I should be because it takes me a lot longer to frame a wall than than it does a lot of people that do it all the time. And and so I was out there yesterday and I noticed that, you know, on some of those boards that I like to stick those things up there and I like them to fit real tight, but sometimes they don't fit real tight. But you know, they have these pneumatic nailers now, and so with that pneumatic nailer, even if it doesn't fit real tight, you can just shoot those nails in there, and, and, and you know, I'm not talking, I don't want a gap like that, you know, but I like to have to hammer it in there, and it stands there by itself, and then I nail it in. But one thing I noticed that, you know, it's not just about nailing it, because you can nail something, and if you don't... If you don't put your nail in the right place, it doesn't really do much good. It's not about just shooting a bunch of nails in there and saying, I nailed it. It's about placing your nails properly. And this is what, this is what the, the preacher is saying here. This is what Solomon is saying. He says, the words of scholars are like well-driven, well-placed nails. See, it's not good enough that we just get up and we just drive a bunch of nails to say that we've put some nails in the board. It's much better that the nails that we place are driven well and placed well. Because if they're not driven well and not placed well, though we might have a bunch of nails there, they may not really be doing what they're supposed to be doing. And when I think of when I think of the responsibility we have in terms of preaching and teaching, this is, this, is, this is what I think about. It's not good enough that we just come here and say we did church. The question is, what, what are we learning? Are the nails that we're driving, are they well-driven? Are they well-placed? Is what is being built, is it being built properly? Is it fitted together well? Is it joined together well? 
Is it going to stand the test of time and the storms that will inevitably come against it? You know, I think this is one of the most important things in terms of whether we talk about fathers or mothers or the people that we are responsible for. You know, as a pastor, I'm responsible for you. I'll stand before God one day and give an account concerning the nails that I drove in the boards, how well they were driven and how well-placed they were. As parents, fathers will give an account one day. Because whether you realize it or not, when we talk about children, we're building something. The question is, what are we building and how are we building it? We can talk in terms of a pastor, a teacher, masters of the assemblies. What are we building? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's an overriding truth, but, the, but also the truth is that God has placed us here as masters of the assemblies, as heads of our homes, in positions and places of authority. And the question is, how well are we placing the nails? How well driven are they? Are we content just to throw a few extra ones in there and call it good? Or do we want to get them placed right and fixed right so that we know that what's being established is established right? And I think that's the heart of God, is to establish it right. I know it is. And so... I feel very passionate that we are established right. Now, I want to encourage you. You know, sometimes parents come and they, they, they say, well, you know, my kids are doing this or my kids aren't doing this or we complain about things and about people. And the question is, you know, what is the example we're setting? You know, whatever I encourage you in, how, how effective is that if, if, if I'm not willing to walk in the same thing? You know, it's like a dad saying, don't, don't, don't look at what I do, just do what I say. It doesn't matter that I'm doing everything that I'm telling you not to do, you don't pay attention to that. You do what I say. You don't worry about what I do. How, how effective do you think that's going to be in the long term? You might get that child to submit and obey because he fears you. But I promise you, when that child grows up and gets out on his own, you know what he's going to do? He's not going to do what you say. He's going to do exactly what he saw you do. Because you know how kids learn? Kids learn by example. You can beat your kids all you want, trying to make them do the right thing, but if you don't give them the right example, I don't care if you never spare the rod. It doesn't say, don't spare the rod, and then do what you want to do. No, it, it says, don't spare the rod. But it also says, 
lead by example. And Paul, when he wrote those words to Timothy, he said, Timothy, this is what you're up against. People don't want to endure sound doctrine. They're going to heap up for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. But Timothy, you, you be different. You hold firm and you hold steady the course. You be ready in season and out of season. You preach the word, Timothy. Why? Because that is the only thing that will change and transform them. See, I can't be the only one preaching the word. Everywhere we go, do you realize this, church? Everywhere we go, we're preaching a sermon. Fathers, every day you're preaching a sermon to your children, whether you know it or not. Mothers, every day you're preaching a sermon to your children, whether you know it or not. At work, you're preaching a sermon. At home, you're preaching a sermon. At the grocery store, at the gas station, on the highway, you're preaching a sermon everywhere you go. Some people know it, some people don't know it. But we're conveying a message everywhere we go in everything that we do. Amen? And the question is, what is the message that we're conveying? Now, I'm going to start today, we're, we're going to begin talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And that was kind of like a really long introduction that really wasn't part of my message, but, but yet it is kind of part of my message. Because here's what I know. This is now part seven, and Jeff Kyle uh, talked last week, and it was a fantastic message. Um, and I don't think it's, Caleb went to St. Louis, and I don't think we've got it loaded onto the website, but we will get it loaded onto. And if you didn't get a chance to hear Jeff, once we get that loaded onto the website, I really would encourage you to listen uh, to what he had to say. Uh, it, it goes right along with what we're talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit. But here's, here's what I know, that since I've begun this several weeks ago, I'll just be honest with you, I have... I have disrupted a number of people's theology. And, and here's the thing, I knew that I would when I began this series. And it's not that I'm trying to disrupt people's theology, it's that I want to make sure that the nails are driven well and they're placed in the right place. Because it's not good enough that we just believe something because it's what I've always been taught. That's fine if what you've been taught lines up with the Scripture. And it doesn't mean that, that what you were taught is necessarily wrong. It may mean that we just need to look at things a little bit differently and understand them within a different context. I, I can't remember who was... I think it was uh, Spencer was telling me a story and he's next door during children's church, uh, of, a, of a guy, I think it's this guy who's, uh, who started this band, and he grew up in a very religious Christian home and was forced to go to, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't forced at the beginning, but he you know, went, to, went to youth camp every year, camp every year, and, and at this camp, 
they really encourage these kids to have an experience. Here's the thing was, it was a Pentecostal camp. I'm not anti-Pentecostal. I consider myself charismatic. This is a charismatic church. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate those labels. You know why I hate those labels? Because you won't find those labels anywhere in the Bible. Matter of fact, when we get into the study that we're getting ready to get into, you'll see that every Christian church better be charismatic. The reality is, most people that even care about that term probably don't even know what the term means. We only know it as it defines certain things. And so, this, uh, this guy at this camp, because he didn't have the same experience, they told him he wasn't saved, and he could never be saved until these things happened. Now, this was like an extreme, this was like extreme Pentecostalism. I mean, extreme. And the guy was like, you know, he just, it's like, I wasn't going to just do something because everybody else was doing it. I wanted the real thing. And his parents and his church told him, said, well, you just can't be saved. You're not saved. God has rejected you because he hasn't given you this experience. That is an extreme example, church. But I'm telling you, this is the kind of thing that is so contrary to the Scripture. This is what we've got to get away from. We've got to get back to the truth of the Scripture and understand what our salvation is, what the gospel is. Now, we're going to begin talking about the gifts of the Spirit. I believe every gift of the Spirit was given, as described in the Bible, was given by God to the church, and He will not take those gifts away. He will not cause those gifts to cease until He has accomplished what He said they were given for to begin with, and that was to build up the body of Christ, to bring the body of Christ into a place of unity and maturity. And we're not there yet. We haven't attained to that yet. Doesn't mean that some are not more mature individually than others, but I'm I'm saying, can we honestly say that the body of Christ does not need to be edified and built up any longer? We can't say that, can we? It absolutely does. And that's why God gave the church spiritual gifts for the building up, the edification of the body. So the body still needs to be edified. So spiritual gifts are still real and and in operation today. So let's get that out front at the very beginning. So let's begin there. But before we do, let's, let's just review real quick. Before we can talk about spiritual gifts, we need to be clear on the concept of being filled with the Spirit. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. And what that term means and what that term doesn't mean. So Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled continuously with the Spirit is what that literally says there. 
or here's what, here's what this translates to, be living under the Spirit's control and influence. Just like we can get come under the influence and the control of wine, and we lose control of our own faculties, and it's no longer us. I mean, if you guys have ever been under the influence of alcohol, you know that the alcohol will influence you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Well, this is what Paul is saying. Don't, don't let those things influence you. Let the Spirit be the influence that is directing and controlling your life. Just like you guys are when you get drunk on wine, the wine is influencing you and controlling you. Doing things that you wouldn't normally do. He says, forget the wine. Let the Spirit fill you that way. Let the Spirit control you and influence you. Live under that influence and under that control. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. It's our continuous surrender to the Holy Spirit's life, the Holy Spirit's influence, and the Holy Spirit's power that's dwelling and flowing within us as a result of what? As a result of our new birth in Christ. So when we got born again, when we got saved, guess what? We received the Holy Spirit. How much of it? Part of it? All of it. Because when we got saved, we received Christ, who is the fullness of Paul says in Colossians. So at the moment I got saved, guess what? The person of the Holy Spirit baptized me, placed me into Christ, and the Father anointed me just like He anointed the priest in the Old Covenant, just like He anointed the king. There was an anointing. How many times did the priest and the king get anointed? Only one time. That's why the anointing oil lasted a thousand years. King Josiah was the last king to use the anointing oil that Moses mixed up. For a thousand years, that anointing oil lasted. And the Jews today believe that when the Messiah comes, he will restore the anointing oil. Well, he did. Jesus, the Messiah, came and he gave us the real anointing oil. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Because that's all the anointing oil typified was the Holy Spirit. He took that oil away because he didn't want that oil to become an idol. He took the Ark of the Covenant away. Why? Because he didn't want the Ark to become an idol. Why? Because he sent the real Ark, Jesus Christ. What that typified. So it's not, it's not a gift of the Spirit in the life of a believer. Listen, it's not a gift of the Spirit in the life of a believer that indicates whether the believer is filled with the Spirit. It is a surrender to the Spirit in the life of the believer that indicates whether the believer is filled with the Spirit. The Corinthians had spiritual gifts, but they were not being controlled by the Spirit. They were carnal. How do we know? Because Paul says, you're carnal. You're immature. You're dividing. You're behaving like sinners. You got incest and division and every kind of thing that shouldn't be named among pagans being named among you. You got tons of gifts going on in the church, but you have what? No fruit. And you can tell me all day long you're filled with the Spirit, but if you don't have any fruit of the Spirit, your life betrays you. This is why Paul goes from 1 Corinthians 12, gifts, to 1 Corinthians 13, love. What is love? It is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not a gift of the Spirit that indicates whether I'm filled with the Spirit. It's my surrender to the control and the influence of the Spirit that indicates whether I'm filled. 
So the indication of the Spirit's filling is, is the believer's surrender, not the Spirit's gift. Being filled with the Spirit does not speak of the believer having the Spirit. It speaks of the Spirit having the believer. I use that. You understand what I'm saying? Does the Spirit have you? Is He the one controlling and influencing your life? Well, if you're filled with the Spirit, that's what that means. So we live surrendered to the Spirit's control as we reckon ourselves crucified with Christ, knowing what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So an aspect of the Holy Spirit's, the reality of the Spirit in my life, an aspect of that control and influence is spiritual gifts. I mean, spiritual gifts are a reality in the life of the believer. And, And here's what I believe. I believe that God gives spiritual gifts to every believer, whether they're living under the influence of the Spirit or not. He did with the Corinthians. They weren't being influenced. They weren't living under the control of the Spirit. They were doing their own thing, but yet they had gifts manifesting all over the place. And what did Paul do? He brought, he brought this letter as a correction to help them understand what was more important. Because what they were doing was exalting their gift and thinking because they had a gift, they were the cat's meow. And they were actually fighting with each other, dividing with each other because some had one gift and some had another gift and they'd say, my gift's better than your gift. My gift's better than yours. Oh, no, it's not. My gift is better. No, my gift is better. Paul says, who are you guys? guys are acting like a bunch of kids you call yourself followers of christ where is where is the maturity you say you've got the spirit that you're filled with the spirit where is your love because love wouldn't be jealous love this is why paul i don't have time to do today but go and read first corinthians 13 this is why paul wrote first corinthians 13 contrary to popular belief, Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 so we could read that scripture at our marriage ceremonies. He wrote that to a church that was dividing and fighting over their gifts that they held in, it's like kids fighting over toys. Paul says, oh my gosh, you guys are so immature. Let me, let me tell you, if you really are filled with the Spirit, it has nothing to do with your gift. If you're truly filled with the Spirit, you will have love. And this is the way love is demonstrated. This is what love in your life will look like. It it will look like exactly what your life is not. So we need to define our terms, okay? It came up in the Bible study this morning. Kathy has a friend who, there's a very popular... um, TV and radio personality, because he's very patriotic and talks about Jesus all the time, but he happens to be Mormon, and she was saying her friend is convinced that he's really saved. Well, I don't know whether he is or isn't, but, but I'll, I'll tell you this, Mormons can talk about Jesus all day long. It, it doesn't mean they're saved. You know why? Because their definition of Jesus 
is not the same definition of Jesus found in the Scripture. So it doesn't matter that we use the same term and we have a different meaning. Do you understand what I'm saying? So here's the deal. Unless we understand the meaning of the words and the terms that we read and that we use, we may misunderstand the truth. See, if, if, if I can talk about being filled with the Spirit, I can talk about gifts of the Spirit, I can talk about all that, but if I don't understand the biblical context of that, I may understand it in a way that is, that is not really consistent with the truth. And it may cause me to believe and to act and to behave in a manner that is contrary to what the Scripture would say because I believe, I'm using the same term as the Scripture, but I'm believing something different about that term. So it may make me chase after something that, that I'm never going to get that somebody says I have to get in order to be saved. But yet the Scripture clearly says you're going to get it if God wills for you to get it. And it has nothing to do with whether I have the Spirit or not. Because having the Spirit has everything to do with whether I'm born again or not. Because if, if I don't have the Spirit, I can't be born again. So the term, let's just go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this probably will be about as far as we get today. I'm not going to rush through this because I think it's really, really important for us to take the time to drive the nails properly. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Now, I want to stop right there. I want you to see, if, if, if in your Bible, the word gifts should be in italics. Do, do you know what it means when a word in your Bible is italicized? It means that that word was not in the original text. So if, if we could read Greek today... And I can't. I know how to use a concordance. And thank God for modern technology. Because I don't have to be able to read Greek today. I, I, can, I, can, I can find out without having to read and write the language. So here's what the original text would say. Now concerning spiritual, brethren. The word gifts is not there. Now, the word gifts is correctly inserted there. Because it's inserted there because we don't really have a word in the English that, that really properly describes this word that's translated spiritual here. But, but we know from the... How do we know gifts is correct? Because we know from the context of the chapter... Here's another thing. Remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer this to you. You need to read and study your Bible in context. If you don't read and study your Bible in context, you're going to get confused. You're going to misunderstand and you're going to believe things that aren't true. You can't just pull a verse out of the air and create a doctrine out of that. You've got to read and study and understand the Scripture in the context of what it's saying. So we know in the context that gifts is correct. So it's just helping us. Because it wouldn't really make much sense to us if it just said, now concerning spiritual, brethren, 
Spiritual what? Because spiritual to us is, is an, it's an adjective. It's not a noun. It's, it's describing something. And so in English, we've got to have something there that it's describing. But in the Greek language, that wasn't the case. It's the word pneumatikos. It means nothing to us. But, but to make it understandable in English, they had to put the proper context there. What does Paul say? Brethren, who's he writing to? He's writing to brethren. Now let me ask you this. He's writing to brethren, but we know that not everybody there was saved, right? They didn't have a sign at the door. Only believers need to enter. <laughs> Just like at our churches. We don't have a sign saying only brethren can enter in. No, anybody can come. I'm preaching to all of you guys as you are. I'm teaching you and preaching to you like you are brethren. But maybe not all of you are brethren. But I'm preaching and teaching as though you are. This is why we've also got to get out of this mentality that Sunday morning is where we do our evangelism. No, Sunday morning is where we're to be equipped as believers so that we can go out and do the work of an evangelist and spread the gospel and make Christ known. Because most sinners, most lost people, most unbelievers don't get up early and come to church on Sunday morning. I don't know if you guys have noticed that or not. Have you noticed that? This is why the early church met every day, and they went from house to house. They didn't do their evangelism on Sunday morning in the synagogue because the only people that went to the synagogue were the believers. Yeah, mostly Jews, that's right. Okay. So he says, concerning... Spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. So in the original, this word, gifts, is not there. But I want to focus on this word spiritual. For you students who like to study, if you have a Strong's Concordance or you're keyed to Strong's on your computer, it's number 4152. And it's the word pneumaticos. Now, what's interesting about this word, this word does not exist in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Do you know, like, in 3... See, it was about 350 B.C., they translated the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures into Greek. Why? Because Greek was the language of the world. You say, wonder why the New Testament's written in Greek. Because Greek was the language of the world, even though by the time the New Testament came around, we're in the Roman Empire. But Greek was the universal language spoken in the known world. I wonder who arranged for that to happen. That, that, that all of the world that this scripture went to, there's a reason why God didn't let them go east. He made them go west. And in all the parts of the world that these men went and took the gospel to, guess what language they spoke? They spoke Greek, for the most part. And when they got to the outer parts, the furthest ends of the earth, by that time, they're translating the Bible, they are preaching and teaching in their own, but, but they never stopped learning Greek. Up through the Middle Ages. 
Because so much of Western literature, not just the scripture, was written in Greek. And so, in the Greek version of even the Old Testament, this word that we translate spiritual, it doesn't exist. Guess what? It doesn't exist in the Gospels either. This is a post-Pentecost word. This is an after-Pentecost word. You know why? Because this word made no sense before Pentecost. Because what this word is conveying, those Jews could not comprehend the reality that this word was conveying to them. I'm telling you, that first Pentecost, the Pentecost, do you know there's only the one Pentecost that really matters? Before that Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, every other Pentecost for 1,500 years was nothing but a shadow that pointed to the real Pentecost. We have not had and will not have another Pentecost, period. There's only one Pentecost. That's like saying we need to have another crucifixion. We need to have another Passover. We need Jesus to come again and be our Passover lamb again. It ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. It is not going to happen. How do we know? Because the scripture clearly says he died once and for all to take away our sin. He is the high priest that continues In what? In the power of an endless life. His blood still today is making us white and clean and pure and holy. He doesn't need to die again. We don't need to have another outpouring. You know why? Because there has already been the Pentecost. God has poured out His Spirit. Who is it available to? Jesus told us, Ask your Father in heaven and He will give you the Holy Spirit. Would this make sense to you? Now, God, here's the deal. Lord, I'm asking you to give me the Holy Spirit, but that whole salvation thing, I don't, I don't want to accept Jesus. I just want the Holy Spirit. Is that possible? Uh-uh. It ain't possible. If God gives me the Holy Spirit, what? do I also get? Have to get. Salvation. Do you know what our doctrines today have done? Our doctrines have reduced salvation to something that is somehow less than some other experience we can have. It's the truth. I'm not going to speak for any of you guys, but that was the attitude I had for a long time. I felt sorry for those poor people that just had salvation, but they didn't have the fullness. I felt sorry for those Lutherans and Catholics and Baptists and all those people that say that, 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 that that's not real today. You know what? That was just pure self-righteous pride on my part. And I'll tell you what, I've repented of it. I have absolutely repented of it. Now, there may be people 
living today who do not understand that they have the fullness. There's no doubt about that. And so we got to create some other thing to make us believe that we do. But the reality is, you cannot get anything more. God can give you nothing more than your salvation. Your salvation is the beginning, it is the end, it is everything. But here's the deal. Do you really understand what you have as a result of that salvation? Do you really understand the fullness of what God has given you at salvation? I will submit to you that the vast majority of the church does not. And then you have another section of the church that thinks salvation is a lesser experience and I've got to have a secondary experience that's greater than salvation. Uh-uh. That's just as false. If God has not given me His Spirit, then my sins are not washed away. If God has not put the fullness of His Spirit... If God has not allowed Christ to come and dwell in me, and who is Christ? The Scripture says He is the fullness. The fullness. says it twice in Colossians. He is the fullness. The question is, do you have a comprehension of that fullness? And what that reality means. Now, we haven't even got the spiritual gifts yet. We're still trying to wrap our mind around understanding what it means to be filled with the Spirit and understanding this so great a salvation. That's why the writer of the Scripture says, oh, he speaks of so great a salvation that has been given to us. See, salvation is not just another topic to preach about on Sunday morning. Salvation is not just a topic we preach about when we know we got a bunch of sinners around. Our salvation encompasses everything from beginning to end, from that which has no beginning to that which has no end. Can you you comprehend that? I can't. Do you you realize how limited we make God? I mean, we, we put such constraints on God. We think of these things as subjects that fit in these neat little boxes that we construct. Uh-uh, they don't fit in any box. They cannot be contained. They are so great. They are so powerful. They are so all-encompassing. They cannot be contained in anything. Your salvation can't fit in a box that we can construct. The fullness that we have in Christ the reality of His Spirit living in us, it's, it's beyond human comprehension. But just because we can't fully comprehend it does not mean it is not fully true and fully a reality in our life. It is, church. It is. So this word, it means spiritual. That's why it's translated Spiritual. But it means spiritual in the sense that it's non-carnal. It's, it's not fleshly. It's not of this earth. As a matter of fact, this term inherently speaks of that which is invisible, that which is powerful. It, it speaks of that which is not of this earthly realm. 
It speaks of those things, the invisibility and the power of what God has given to us. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit is like the wind. You you know it's there, but you don't really know where it's coming from. You don't really know where it's going. I mean, can you see the spirit? Can you all see the spirit? Can you see the effects of the spirit? Oh, yes, absolutely. And so let's take the Corinthian church, for example. They could see the effects of the spirit. They could see the manifestations of the spirit. But Paul could also see the lack of fruit. He could see the manifestation without love. And he says, this isn't correct. Because God never gave us his spirit to operate apart from the fruit, beginning with love. So it speaks of things that that are invisible yet powerful. It's a term that could not exist before Pentecost because the Holy Spirit operating in and through the church could not occur until after the outpouring of Pentecost. Here's the thing. Those things that are described by this term that's hard for us to wrap our minds around are not just limited to nine manifestations in the book of 1 Corinthians. By the time we get through this, we're going to look at all the gifts that are listed. And even if we take all the gifts that are listed, the gifts listed in Romans, the gifts listed in two different places in 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts listed in Ephesians 4, and and Peter talks about them again in, in 1 Peter 4. If we just take, and, we, and, and, and I'll give you a list. We'll make a list of all the gifts. This word still, that is still so limited in terms of what this word is speaking of. This is talking about the reality of the Spirit operating in the life of the believer. And here's the thing. You need to understand that if you're born again today, the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit is operating in you, and He wants to operate through you. But if you don't understand the reality of what's happened to you at salvation, you may go through life believing that the Spirit will not operate in you and through you because you haven't had some experience yet. Or you might think that it's something that you're going to have to do. This word, gift, let's go on down. And I'm going to stop right here. And here's where we're going to pick it up. Let's look at... 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are diversities of gifts. That word gift, you may subscribe to a magazine that has the title, charisma. That's what this word is. The word gift there is the word charisma. Do you know what the word for grace is in Greece? It's charis. Charisma. Do you know what is linked with this word gift? It is the word grace. And here's what we need to understand. When you are saved, when you're born again, and God puts His Spirit inside of you, anoints you with His Spirit, God wants you to be filled. He wants you to live surrendered and under the control of that Spirit. And He gives to every believer... The scripture says this, spiritual gifts. We don't all get the same gift, but he gives 
gifts to every believer. And those gifts are gifts of grace. You don't earn them. You don't buy them. You don't work for them. You don't pray hard and and hope that God will give you another one. Yes, desire them. Yes, pray for them. But you're not going to get it because you prayed real hard. You're not going to get it because you lived a real holy life. You're not going to get it because you... You crawled on your knees until your knees were bloody, and then God says, well, your sacrifice is sufficient. I'll give you this gift now. Uh Uh-uh. It is a gift of grace. And who determines who gets what and when they get it? The Scripture very clearly says, He determines. So we're going to stop right there. We just scratched the surface. We're going to go deep, church, and look at this. We're going to define our terms and we're going to look at what the Scripture truly says because we want to make sure that our nails are driven right. That they're driven well and they're driven in the right place because what? God desires to build an established in you. He wants it established right. And how do we know if it's right? We know if it's right because it will line up with this. This is our plumb line right here. We know we're on the level if it, if it measures up to this. We know we're not out of line because this is our plumb line right here. This is what keeps us level. This is what keeps us in line. So we're going to let the Scripture define for us terms and words. And we're going to understand in a greater measure what God has done when He gave us His Spirit when He saved us. Amen? All right, I know that was a big, long introduction. I didn't get very far, but that's okay. I really would encourage you guys to read. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Read the whole chapter. And while you're at it, go ahead and read chapter 13. It'll help you begin to understand. Matter of fact, just read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. It'll help you understand. Because do you know when Paul delivered that letter, that was one whole letter. Now, it covers a whole lot of things. But if you read the whole book, it'll help you understand what Paul is addressing when he writes these things. This was a church that was totally and completely out of order, and Paul was bringing correction and encouragement, exhorting them to get in line with the Word and let God truly have His way in their lives. Let's all stand. Now, they got those plates ready for you.